can open in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 21, or you can look in your bulletin along with me. There was a Quaker up north in, in Pennsylvania who posted a sign. He had a farm, uh, a fairly large piece of land. He, had, he, he posted a sign on one of the choicest pieces, the uh, choicest fields on his farm, and the sign said, this land will be given to the first satisfied person who passes this way. So, so the very next day, a, a man knocked on his door. And, and the Quaker, when the Quaker opened the door, the man said, Sir, I just saw the, the sign on your field and I stopped to let you know that I am a completely satisfied man. I have a devoted family, a, a successful business financial security for the future, and I am in excellent health. And the old Quaker looked this visitor over very carefully, and then he said, Pray tell me, friend, if thou art a completely satisfied man, then why do you want my field? Now, in our passage of Matthew this morning, you're supposed to laugh. Go ahead and practice. There you go. And in our passage of Matthew this morning, we're all, it's uh, Matthew 21. This is during the Passion Week as it's commonly called. It would be Tuesday on that Passion Week. And, and Jesus is on one of the many porches that are built into the walls of the internal parts of the temple area. And, and he is teaching and busy uh, teaching his disciples and the other people, the crowds that are gathering. And so some of the Pharisees, the chief priests, have challenged him by asking Jesus where he gets his authority. And so Jesus' response to their unbelief is to tell them three parables. And so this is the parable of the tenants. It's the middle. It's the second of those three. So let's read it together, starting in verse 33. Hear the word of God. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. And the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore... When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So Jesus tells them this parable, they understand it very well. The, the presence of tenant farmers 
and rented vineyards was very common in the life of Palestine in that day. It's similar to the sharecroppers in the Old South, how poor people, both white and black, would live along big pieces of land. The landowner would let them live there in order to work the fields, and they would give some of the crop to the landowner, and they would keep some to feed their family. It's the same way rice farmers often live. The poor village rice farmers live in India, where we're headed out this week. And they live on the side of a big plot of land, but, and they get an acre to, plot, to, to, uh, to till for their own, for their own family. So, so Jesus is talking to them about something they know very well. And, and, and the crowd follows this little story very closely, closely enough, in fact, that when Jesus asks a question, they respond to that question in verse 41. And, and the crowd knows from the Old Testament The story of the vineyard is told in Isaiah chapter 5. They know from that story that in this parable, God is the owner of the vineyard, the tenant is Israel, the servants are the prophets, and the son is Jesus. So I have three things this morning, three points to my sermon, three things I wanted to share with you about the gospel. And the first is grace rejected. You know, this is a parable of judgment. But the grace of God is splashed all over this little story. Judgment is always a matter of rejected grace. Anytime God has a relationship with us, it's a matter of grace. It's a a result of undeserving love and, and favor, unmerited favor from God. And in this parable, you can easily see God's generosity and faithfulness and patience if you look. The, the tenants, they get a fully equipped vineyard. It's all ready to go. It's ready to bring fruit and a harvest from the very beginning. The, the landowner, he, he built a wall around the vineyard to, to keep the animals away from the grapes. And then he puts in a watchtower so that they can guard against thieves and fire. And, and then he, he builds a wine press there so that the grapes can be processed right on site. It, it's a first-class facility. And so it was with Israel. God picked them out of all the nations on the earth to be his special people, his bride. And in Deuteronomy 7, he tells them that his choice is not because Israel was a great nation. They were the least of all nations. And that's why God chose them. And and he rescued them from Egypt. He guarded them. He he put a a hedge about them. He gave them the promised land, a land flowing with with, uh, milk and honey. He gave them everything they needed. All they had to do was love and and honor God alone, and they would have had heaven on earth. And, And it's the same thing with the church. Christ has come and taken away our sin, and he's given us his righteousness. He set us apart as his special people, his bride. He he has given us the Bible, the word of God, as a hedge against a dark and and, and weary world. And and then on top of that, he is always present with us. The, The Bible says that he has given us everything we need for life, and godliness, and and that we're in his kingdom, and we belong to him as sons. On top of that, he's given us the dominion mandate, the cultural mandate to take the kingdom to the whole world. In the New Testament, that's called the Great Commission to engage us in the work of his vineyard to give us purpose and meaning in life by by being productive at work for his glory and, and by making disciples. 
So like the Quaker's question, do we need more? Are we satisfied with what he's given us? Or is there something else we want? Behold the grace and and majesty of our God who chooses the needy and, and the lowly to be in his kingdom and he satisfies our needs as the God who serves and gives his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. So that is the generosity. Did you notice also in this story the trust and faithfulness of the owner who went away on a journey and left the harvesting and the fruitfulness to the tenants? You know, occasionally he sent a servant to collect his portion of the harvest, but God entrusted the tenants with his vineyard. And so it was with Israel, so it is with the church. Jesus has gone away, but he's coming back again, and he asked this question. When the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith on the earth? That, that was the question that the vineyard owner had. And, and, and did he find faith when he sent his servants? Well, the obvious answer is no. So would God find us then to be faithful in his vineyard? Now, that's a good question. God says, take my gifts and and my precious promises, receive my forgiveness and love, and bear fruit for me for my glory and your good. And then in the story, did you also see the depths of God's forbearance and patience? You know, when when, when the owner sends that first servant to get his portion of the harvest, and the the servant returns battered and empty-handed, What does the owner do? And it's at this point, I think, that the parable becomes so amazing, not not because it's true to life, but because it's not. In fact, it surpasses what the average person's reaction would have been to the slight of beating the servant and sending him away empty-handed. You know, we have been swamped in an ocean of foreclosures over the past five to six years. If you fail to pay your mortgage, what happens? You you lose your property. And and some people have responded to that like these tenants, with a shotgun in hand defying the bank to take their property away from them. You know, at, at one time, I had a little business. I had a partner, started it back about 10 years ago. I owned several rental properties, in fact, about a dozen. Well, really, the bank and I owned them. And over seven years that I had this business with a partner, 90% of my tenants failed to keep the lease. It was was distressing. And now, what I found out is it was was in my best interest when someone was behind on their rent to, to remind them to pay and to show at least a month of patience because it was cheaper in the short run even to miss a whole month of rent than to replace them and to go through the trouble of evicting and then cleaning the house and getting it repainted and getting it back on the market and getting it rented. And, of course, I wanted to be merciful and be a good guy, but very quickly it became costly to keep them, and so I ended up in most cases having to evict, usually waiting way too long to do it. This story is amazing because of what the owner doesn't do. He doesn't immediately evict them. He sends his agent instead to collect the rent 
And then when the agent is beaten, he's not just ignored, as I often was. He, he's beaten. And, 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 and the owner doesn't send the sheriff as he ought to, but instead he sends another agent. And then another, and then another, and, and then finally he sends his only son, his beloved son, to collect the rent. Now this owner is God. This is the God who who has manifested so much patience with us. Imagine the patience of God. Think about the time of Noah. Did you know that that God sent Noah to preach repentance for 120 years before he brought the flood? Imagine God's patience, 120 years. This is the same God the story is told in Ezekiel of God's glory cloud his his throne chariot standing still hovering above the east gate of the the temple during ezekiel's prophecy so reluctant was god to leave his chosen zion his place of his abode and finally he leaves after 200 years of warning from a myriad of prophets that he had sent again and again you know, there's a support group for pa- parents with hyperactive kids. H- have you heard of it? It's a group that's called I've Told You a Hundred Times. That, that's, that's the name of the group. I, I had one of these children as we raised our kids. I, I remember, I won't tell you which one it is. I, I remember one day many years ago I, I was dressing down that particular child with just those words. I've told you this a hundred times and when will you listen and just after i said that i heard the holy spirit in my head it wasn't audible but it was the lord and i heard god say and how many times have i told you jim the same old things the same old character flaws that you're still working on the same sins you cannot understand this parable until you see the extraordinary generosity, faithfulness, and patience that the owner has shown the tenants. And you cannot understand the the gospel until you see God's undeserving favor towards sinners. Now, are you with me so far? So grace rejected. Second thing is grace lost. Grace rejected, grace spurned, is always grace lost. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In God's covenant with Israel, in his contract with his people, he gave them everything. He provided everything they need. He provided salvation. He gave them everything they needed in that vineyard, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, and they were to respond with love and devotion for God, with love and care for one another. Those were the two great commands. They were to love God with a full heart and love one another as themselves. And so they were to bear fruit. But if you've read the Old Testament at all, you know that they usually didn't bear fruit, not not toward God anyhow. Now, some did. There's always a remnant. But but there is story after story in your Old Testament of kings and priests and prophets who lived for themselves and and led the people astray to follow idols. It it amazes me 
that how, how distressed I am over the nature of our country in this day when this is all over the Old Testament. I don't, I don't know why as a people of God we're, we're surprised. Not when I look in the mirror anyway. Now was the vineyard fruitful? Absolutely it was fruitful. If it had been barren, then the ten tenants wouldn't have gone to such lengths to steal it. If the vineyard had been barren, that they would have, they would have left it long ago and gone somewhere else now the vineyard was fruitful but it was not fruitful for the master the fruit was kept by the tenants for themselves now what kind of fruit is christ looking for from us well the answer is in john chapter 15 and i think we have that up on the board verses one jesus says this i am the true vine and my father is the gardener He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a a branch that is thrown away and withers. And, and, And such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now God has placed us in the vineyard of his kingdom, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, if we are his disciples, then we will be bearing fruit for his sake and by his power. And only those bearing such fruit are truly Christ's disciples. So it's not simply an affirmation to the facts of the gospel that the Lord is working in our lives, but he's also transforming us so that we'll live for him and bear fruit. Now, what kind of fruit is it? Well, first of all, it's a fruit of a devoted life, seeking Christ before all else. You see that easily in the text we just read. Getting new life from him and then getting a sustained life from him, remaining in him while he remains in us, getting all spiritual nourishment from him as a vine, just as the branches have to depend completely on the vine in order to get nourished and to bear fruit. He is the vine and and we are the branches. We are completely dependent upon him to bear fruit for God. Apart from him, we can do Nothing. So if you're not completely committed to Christ, to follow Him as Lord, you can't bear a harvest of fruit for the vineyard owner because then your fruit would be for yourself. And if Christ is not the source of your whole life and the very purpose of your life, then He says you are like the dead branches hanging on the tree until a Great wind blows. You know, I picked up a bunch of those limbs yesterday in my yard. We've had so much rain and wind 
this spring that I again and again I keep putting branches by the side of the curb where they'll come pick them up and they're going to take them and they're going to burn them. And so first of all, it's a devoted life. Seeking all my life in Christ alone. And then secondly, the fruit of that devoted life is love. It's living in love for others, to serve and to please others before myself, the Apostle Paul says. You see, the vineyard is the corporate body. It's all of us together. It's the church. And here's what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves is born born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, if you're an old man like me, you sang this song in the 70s. Do you remember it? Beloved, let us love one another. You remember this song? For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God, he that loveth not. Come on. <laughs> Knoweth not God, for God is love. So, beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. I see a few. Thank, 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 thank you. It's not Josh, is it? God is calling us to bear the fruit of love in that body collectively, relationally. Loving one another through thick and thin. Working together. Praying together, playing together, worshiping together, showing mercy to one another, serving one another like the foot washing scene in John 13. Have you ever stopped to think about what it really means to love like the foot washing scene in John 13? I've spent a lot of time meditating on that. In India, we walk around in sandals and the road is very dirty. And when you get to a place, you take your shoes off because they're filthy and you go in barefoot. Usually, you still don't have a way to clean them. There might be a mat there. I usually wear socks, but most of the nationals go barefoot in their sandals. And some people have closed-toed shoes, but, but mostly sandals. And so, in John 13, Jesus washes their feet. It's something a servant didn't even do in Israel. So, think about what you might do for your friend in the church that's loving them in a way that even a servant wouldn't do. Now, in upper-middle-class America, what would it be? Do, do you each have needs of that sort? Now, I've mowed my neighbor's grass without being asked a few times, thinking that that would be it. That's on the level of a servant. Um, ladies, I guess you could take a mop and bucket and show up at somebody's door. Most likely, you would offend anybody that you showed up to clean their house because they would think that you think it's dirty and that they're not keeping up. I've noticed nobody's offended if you mow their grass, but maybe it's because men involved. But, but if you go to clean, clean somebody's house, but, but think about and meditate on what that might be. And, and then practicing hospitality to the people of God and, and to the people of Kennesaw and Ackworth. You see, and then gathering branches that will be grafted into the vine through evangelism and given life. You see, this is the fruit of God's love, of seeking Christ together, loving and, and serving others at work. I heard the brother already talk about work and being more faithful. That's the fruit of love. And in the local community and then the global community and, of course, at home, a church on mission for God's glory, 
a mission of gospel love and, and gospel words. Word and deed ministry. You see, Israel missed this. They, the, the leaders thought that fruit bearing was a spine tingling, persistent, hair splitting, keeping of the law so that they might be righteous before God and then looking down their nose on those who didn't live as they did. You know what? I see the same thing, kind of thing going on in the church in America. Wealth has made us comfortable, lazy, and selfish. We have forgotten that our work is for God's glory and not primarily for our comfort. And, and I will be the first to admit that I'm the worst. I have the biggest comfort idol. And, and, and the evangelical church is now divided into two camps. We are either evaluating and criticizing one another to death or we care so little about God's way that we believe and do anything as long as it comes with the promise to give me the good life now. I call that the therapeutic gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to make you feel good about yourself. Fruitfulness in the vineyard is not about attending meetings. It's about people. And what I've noticed is that the more doctrine people generally know, and I see this in my own, our own denomination, the more doctrine that people generally know, the less love that they show. It's supposed to be the other way around. And the only reason I can think of that for, for that being true, is pride. Now, what should reality be? The more doctrine you know, the more love you show. It, it should go hand in hand because fruitfulness in the vineyard is love for one another as a church is revealed at work and at home and in the world. Look at John, uh, 15, John 15 again, verse 12. Is it up there? I'll read it. Jesus says, there it is, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, here's my question. Why would anyone ever reject fabulous grace and overwhelming love? People are rejecting it every day. Why would anyone ever reject the gospel if it's about fabulous grace and overwhelming love? If the gospel is about the love of God and the gift of righteousness and forgiveness because of the cross of Christ, now who wouldn't want that? If the good news of the gospel is an invitation of grace to feast in God's kingdom, then why would anyone ever reject that? Well, the only reason you would is only if you believe that this grace came with burdensome demands that would turn you away and, and you would seek yourself instead. So if you believe the gospel, that God's, that God's covenant, his contract, comes with burdensome demands, that's the reason you would turn away. Now, now, here's my second question. Why would you and I continue to live for ourselves and our own dreams in the American church when God has offered to give us a life of ultimate purpose, living for Him and His mission? Well, the answer is only if we believe that there was more pleasure and satisfaction doing our own thing instead of God's thing. There can be no other reason. Why would Christians, why would we hold on to our stuff Storing up as much as possible instead of living a generous life. Treasuring our own time as most important instead of living a hospitable life and serving one another in Christ's name. Only 
if we believe the fruit we pick for ourselves is more tasty and delicious than the fruit we pick for Christ, see? That's the only way. So look at your text again. It's in your bulletin. Matthew 21, verse 37. Last of all, he sent his son to them, and they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Here's how they answer. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop (coughs) at harvest time. You see, grace rejected, grace spurned, is always grace lost. I I remember during those rental days, during those seven years of struggle to have this little hobby, I I remember one rental family who who moved into one of my houses who didn't have a refrigerator. And that was often the case. People coming from an apartment didn't own their own refrigerator. And I'd read in my rental book that I should never buy them one or, or, or provide those because they would just tear them up. And, th- and that was my experience. So instead what I did is I offered to buy them one that would be theirs and they could pay me back monthly for a year. And so that's what we set up at the very beginning. And then in our lease was no pets. And as it turned out, they raised pit bull puppies, even though they weren't allowed to have pets. And when I came by for a visit, they would always hide them in the master bathroom. And then they never or rarely mowed the grass, and, and, and they didn't get garbage service, which was a requirement in the lease. So they were there about eight months, and they were three months behind by the time I finally got them out. And even though I would worked with them for months... When I finally got them out, I found out that the AC, the air conditioning, had to be repaired because the dogs had eaten the wiring. And then those puppies had left droppings all over the brand new carpet that had been in the house. And there was over 1,500 pounds of garbage in one of the bedrooms because they didn't want to pay $15 a month to have it taken from the front porch. And then they took the refrigerator with them when they left. And to get it back, I would have had to have them arrested, which means their three kids would have gone to defects in the foster care. I just couldn't do that for a $400 refrigerator. Every tenant I ever evicted believed it was my fault. They were angry. And they all thought that I was getting fabulously wealthy at their expense instead of seeing that I was patiently trusting them with my precious assets, which barely made a profit each month if they paid their rent on time. But you want to know what? Here's the real truth. I'm that tenant in my relationship with God. I'm in need of God's grace, but I turn away from it regularly, taking His grace and his generosity for granted, leaving 1,500 pounds of garbage in a secret room where nobody else can see it, or at least I hope they don't. Now, I don't know about you, but what what I need is accountability in order to love, serve, and evangelize because my faith is so weak. And I find that faithfulness in the gospel. And that's why the third point that I want to show you this morning is the sons of grace. 
Look again at the passage in verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the, the, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Grace spurned, grace rejected, is always grace lost. But the good news of the gospel is that salvation always comes alongside wherever there is judgment. There is always the offer of mercy. That's how God's mercy works. Judgment comes because of how they treat the Son. I want you to notice in the parable that the tenant knew who the owner's son was and that the son had finally come. They knew who they were killing. They, they were convinced that if they killed the son, they would get the kingdom for good. How, how foolish they were. After all of God's generosity and patience, they now took his power and his justice for granted. That they assumed that the owner that God would not avenge his son or judge them for the breaking of the covenant. But, but you see, God's love doesn't come in a vacuum. God is perfectly just and perfectly loving at the same time. If God is not love, then he is not God. But just as true, if God is not just, he's also not God. So both judgment and salvation are coming. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, so then how do we sum up these Jewish leaders? Well, they knew who Jesus was. You get that, right? They, they knew that he was God's son, the promised Messiah, and the son of David, and yet they refused to acknowledge him or submit before him. They knew who he was, and the reason they would not submit was because of their hard hearts. They did not know God. They were only using him for their good and their power as religious church folks. And if they had known and loved God, wouldn't they have gladly sent back God's portion of the harvest? Yet they did not know him, they did not love him, and they foolishly assumed that God wouldn't do anything. And Jesus says they are rejecting God's plan, they're rejecting God's kingdom, and they're rejecting the chief building block of the kingdom by rejecting the capstone, by rejecting Christ himself. You see, Jesus is that cornerstone. In John 15, it's the vine. Now, a capstone can either be the cornerstone that's laid first that all the building is built on. That's how it's used in Ephesians 2. John, Josh referenced that in worship this morning. But it, it, can, it can also be the stone that's laid last at the top of the building on the roof at the top of the parapet, holding the whole thing together. Like if you look in, 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 the, uh, middle, in uh, the Middle Ages and the construction of cathedrals and the ancient arches, they did that without... Um, without mud and they would put the blocks together and the whole arch is held together by the keystone that goes right in the middle jesus is the keystone of the kingdom and that's how it's used right here in this passage jesus is the capstone the keystone he, he's the final stone in the building of god and you cannot encounter this stone without being changed you can either fall on him 
and be broken, and in mercy he will make you new. Or you can reject him and be smashed in judgment. Those are the only two options. There is no other way. You can either fall on him and be broken in pieces and made new by his grace, or you can reject him and be smashed in judgment. Now, these leaders rejected Christ. They killed him on the cross. Yet Jesus could not be held back by death, and he rose from the dead. His death is judgment on those who go their own way, and it's life to those who put their trust in him. Now, which are you? In history, that judgment for for rejecting Christ came to Israel in 70 A.D. when God sent Rome in judgment to demolish Israel in the temple. And, and, And because of that rejection, the gospel went to the nations. So you see, judgment and salvation came. The kingdom was taken away and given to another. And we are, beloved, the recipients of that judgment and grace. So then you have to ask the question, what about us? How are we doing? How do we respond to the fact that we are the vineyard of God, that this church is in God's vineyard called to bear fruit for the master? The answer is that we can respond like tenants who tight-fistedly give back the fruit that we owe, or we can respond like firstborn sons and joyously bear fruit for a father who's loving and generous and good. Now, which will it be? You, You see... We have been given the trust of God's mission to reach the nations for the glory of God, for for Christ's fame and His glory, to to intentionally and and to be busily about the business of making disciples and, and teaching them to obey all that Christ commands inside our home and at the workplace and in the the community. And you see, God's chief command is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. And Jesus tells us that we bear fruit for God by trusting in Him in complete devotion and then bearing fruit to love our neighbor just as He has loved us. That's our life's mission. Each one of us individually and then together as a church. And you see, the bad news, the bad news is is that if we relate to God as tenants then God will treat us like tenants. And if we see his mission as an obligation and as an expensive burden of my time and treasure, well, well, then he'll relieve us of our obligation and he'll gladly give it to someone else. Because you see, grace spurned is always grace lost. And the bad news is is that if you turn away from Christ altogether, then you'll be crushed and you'll be lost. But, beloved, there is good news. It's incredible good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was crushed in judgment on the cross for our sins, even the sin of fruitlessness. And he rose from the dead to give us a new life, a life that bears the fruit of love. And he was crushed so that we won't be. And he bore fruit for the Father as a beloved son in our place so that we can be fruitful sons. It's so good. And if we will repent, if we will turn away from trusting in ourselves and seeking our own fruit, if we will be broken and turn away from being a tenant and put our faith in Christ alone, then the Father will make us sons 
firstborn sons who inherit the whole kingdom and we will live that life of fruitfulness. And so I invite you to put your hope and your trust in Christ today and to renew that hope. Now I drive a Ford Taurus. It's an old one. It's an 05. It's been in seven wrecks. It's uh, two tons of steel and plastic. I do carry around in my iPhone, though, a picture of me jumping off a Honda Accord just so I can show my Honda friends that the Taurus got the job done. Now, my, my Taurus is two tons of steel and plastic. Now, how many of you could lift up those two tons and carry that car around? Well, none of you could, not, not without help, could you? But what if it was two tons of helium? Then it would lift you, you see. If your relationship with God is like a tenant, then the fruit bearing will seem burdensome because you'll see his mission and his way as a struggle and less satisfying than if you pursue your own dreams. And you see, that weight will crush you. It will feel like carrying a car, a life full of stress and struggle and temptation and disappointment. But when you put your trust in Christ alone and pursue the Father as a firstborn son, you see, then that horrible burden is lifted and replaced with the burden of sonship, and it will feel like carrying helium. And you'll be lifted up and carried by Christ. And you will be set free from yourself and the empty mission of the American dream and the comfort idol. And your life will take on the love of Christ and his mission to work for his glory and make disciples. And that mission will be yours. And your life will bear the fruit of love in others that will last forever and ever. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel.